Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the curious endings of all kinds of stuff. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And today I'm going to go first and talk about the D.A.R.E. program. And if you're not as old as I am. uh, Or I am, because I remember it too. (laughs) The D.A.R.E. 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 actually stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. So this was a phenomenon in the 80s during the, I'm going to use air quotes even though y'all can't see them, the war on drugs. <laughs> How you can have a war on like intangible issues, I don't know. But anyway, according to the D.A.R.E. website, and yes, it's still up because yes, D.A.R.E. still exists to the surprise of myself and maybe hundreds of other Gen Xers and older millennials. And it's located at dare.org, and dare's mission is, quote, teaching students good decision-making skills to help them lead safe and healthy lives. Seems nice. You know, why not? The dare vision is a world in which students everywhere are empowered to respect others and choose to lead lives free from violence, substance use, and other dangerous behaviors. Doesn't seem bad to me either. You know, it's a it's a vision. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna go a little bit into the history of Dare, and um, we're gonna actually there was actually numerous studies that found that it never actually worked, and I'll get into some of them. But we're gonna go into the history just so everybody knows what we're talking about. So in 1983, um, the Dare program was developed by the Los Angeles. Police Department in collaboration with the Los Angeles United School District to create a new drug resistance educational curriculum. The original curriculum was about 17 lessons and it was delivered um, with the cooperation of a DARE police officer. So it was a police officer who was trained in the D.A.R.E. curriculum, and he came to schools, and usually there was like a large meeting or teachers would teach this in the classroom, and then later there would be like like an auditorium meeting of all the kids, and a D.A.R.E. officer would talk about drugs, etc. And it was a lecture style, so it was largely non-interactive. So basically what I remember, we had to sit through this stuff and we got hand like handouts about drugs. And we went and listened to a police officer in a giant auditorium in the school. And he told us about all about drugs. It wasn't all that exciting. So uh, this changed a little bit in the 1990s when drug prevention science became more of a thing. And the D.A.R.E. program developed its own science advisory board of its own drug abuse and prevention specialists. Doesn't seem like a bad thing. This board found that the original curriculum was not very effective in the long term of changing drug use and drug use habits. So in the 90s after this, 
Many different drug pre prevention curricula were developed independently. So researchers kind of saw the D.A.R.E. program and were like, well, this isn't very effective. So they went off on their own and tried to develop different um, drug prevention curricula to present to kids and at schools. So I was out of school in 1996. Um, I was out of high school then, so and I went into college. So I did not, I was not in for the 2000s uh, iteration of D.A.R.E. So in the 2000s, after D.A.R.E. increased the size of its science advisory board, it had all this criticism, so it uh, increased the size of the science advisory board and created a larger curriculum called Take Charge of Your Life that again was supposed to be delivered with the help of police officers. The curriculum also had, uh, as part of it, a large longitudinal study, so it's over quite a few years, of 17,000 seventh through ninth graders. So this is a huge study, just seeing um, if the curriculum was actually working. However, uh, the 2000s happened. <laughs> The first year the curriculum was supposed to be used in, was in September of 2001 in New York City. Oh, no. <laughs> and so New York City experienced the September 9-11 and plans of using it. And New York was one of five test sites for this curriculum. So it was supposed to start September 2001. 9-11 happened. Um, and since New York was one of five test sites, they were like, well this sucks. So they changed the test site very quickly to Newark, New Jersey. So that's going to have a change on the longitudinal study. Then four years later, Hurricane Katrina happened and uh, two of the test sites, New Orleans and Houston. <laughs> oh my God. It's like dare is cursed. I, I know, right? Uh, dare. This is like I took the movie. It's just dare the city destroyer. <laughs> Maybe you're not wrong. <laughs> so yeah, so that of course is going to change because Hurricane Katrina happened and a lot of the kids either that were in the study in New Orleans and Houston either moved out of the area or the kids moved to Houston or they were just everywhere and it's kind of hard to track how a drug abuse prevention program works in a city if you're no longer living in the city. So yeah, that happened. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out. <laughs> so years later, no surprise, the curriculum was found to not have a significant impact on students' behavior. Uh, however, it was found that police officers uh, were good, according to the children, as giving drug information uh, to kids. So kids found the police officers' credible sources of drug information and but it still did not change the students behavior overall so uh, my theory of this is that during the war on drugs uh police any kind of drugs drug use was zero tolerance at that point um so it was seen as a criminal behavior so it's no surprise that police officers had the most knowledge about drug use um an attempt was made again 
by two of the science advisory researchers. Um, they developed a new experimental curriculum and they decided to test that in Philadelphia. This also didn't have positive results, unfortunately. So we have gone through some of the 2000s, Hurricane Katrina, September 9-11, Philadelphia. So in, in 2007, this is when Dare is like, look, this isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> they decided to look for existing curricula that other people had developed um, that were not related to D.A.R.E., but that D.A.R.E. could partner with and D.A.R.E.ify. So they chose the Keeping It Real curricula that had been developed out of the out of Pennsylvania State University and the University and Arizona State University and funded by the National Institutes of Drug Abuse. So the Dare Keeping It Real curricula was more interactive. It encouraged students to work in groups and it was more about decision making. And the curricula also had a bunch of different stuff about cyberbullying, human trafficking, over-the-counter drug abuse, um, and internet safety. So it had a bunch of different stuff as well as drugs. It was just like a public safety kind of a thing and also had drug modules. So police officers actually uh, came into the classrooms and talked to kids, to older kids, but it was a lot of like interactive and working in groups and talking about the keeping it real curricula. So in 2016, I found this was interesting. The real prevention, which is the keeping it real um, dare program, Mm -hmm. And UNC Greensboro, so that's University of North Carolina Greensboro, developed a further high school curriculum that included modules about decision making <laughs> for high school students. Which could have been like a good starting point in 1980, whatever. Yeah, I mean, this, yeah, it's kind of tragic that this all had to happen much later. I mean, but you know, it is what it is. So in 2017, D.A.R.E. developed a module about opiate abuse, use and abuse, and they launched that in 2018. And I was completely surprised that they survived that long. <laughs> I was like, 2018? What? They were around to 2018? Because I remember reading a study, um, I think I was probably in college, that that uh, pretty much said that they, it was thought that it actually taught kids more about drugs than like just being exposed to some drugs on the street. Like you got all kinds of information about drugs you've never heard of. <laughs> it's true, actually. Uh, I would just, we, I remember learning about like angel dust and like look out for angel dust. I'm like, what's angel dust? Yeah. It's meth. I I would never have known what meth was. Or I wouldn't have been to, like, I guess, maybe college? Yeah. So, in 1992, and this uh, this was a funny one because I'd like to highlight this because it, it totally made me laugh. As a, uh, as a Gen Xer or slash elder millennial, I think I'm more on the Gen X side. I was born a little bit before 1980. But in 1992, Indiana University... Um, commissioned uh, by Indiana schools officials, uh, found that 
those who completed the D.A.R.E. program subsequently had significantly higher rates of hallucinogenic drug use. <laughs> this is my favorite one. I just wanted to point this out. And I'm going to say, uh, personally, this is true. I never would have known, nor my friends would have been curious, maybe, about stuff like, oh, say, acid <laughs> or um, ecstasy, had we not learned about it through D.A.R.E. <laughs> They, I feel like that's a very important facet of the program that they probably don't want anyone to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, there was numerous studies. I counted at least 10. There's probably more. Um, just saying this is ineffective. This was not a good program. The D.A.R.E. program did not work. But I wanted to highlight uh, a couple that were my favorite. So in 2001, the Office of the Surgeon General, so at that time it was David Satcher, he placed the D.A.R.E. program in the category of ineffective primary prevention program. So this, this is from the Surgeon General says, this shit does not work. <laughs> in 2007, the Perspectives on Psychological Science, um, the D.A.R.E. program was placed on a list of treatments that have potential to cause harm. <laughs> in wow. clients yeah so it was crazy so a lot of criticisms around the dare program and rightly so uh, at that time it was a product of the extremely ineffective war on drugs era that arguably caused a lot more harm than good in this country it incarcerated poor minorities at a huge rate um at a much higher rate than richer white people and richer white people could afford lawyers uh, that got them off on grants that they would receive, quote-unquote, rehabilitation services, so they didn't serve time. And there are still, um, and this still affects us, definitely. There are still a lot more black people in prison because of drug possession crimes or drug crimes or victimless crimes like drugs um, than there are white people who can afford lawyers and defense. So a lot of that, uh, the D.A.R.E. program came out of that zero tolerance po policy, which pretty much equated smoking pot, which is now legal in a few states, to using heroin. And... Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just the worst. Encouraging children to inform the police on their family members who might nope. be using drugs. Don't do that. So they were using children as informants to because of the zero tolerance policy on drug use. There was even a case in, I believe it was the 1990s, of a kid from North Carolina who brought cannabis to school to say that his his parents were smoking pot at home. I mean, so... I mean, that's like 1984. Like, they just decided 1984 is a guidebook, I guess. <laughs> Because that's straight up what happens to the neighbors. The kids inform on the neighbors and then they disappear in 1984, the book, the dystopian Orwellian nightmare book. Yeah. So in 2013, they might have started getting something right. So there were two field randomized control trials showed that the keeping it real, the real prevention, real um, curriculum was actually reducing substance abuse across grade levels and ethnic racial groups. Um, but 
it really highlights the importance of going into the cultural attitudes of the region and and kind of uh, working with those instead of zero tolerance, you know, not being cognizant of the environment these children are living in, and also adding different kind of modules that would apply to the kids like cyberbullying or uh, internet safety. So, but they also found that there was no need for them to just uh, use a double dose of prevention in high in elementary school, that just going to kids in middle school was enough to change behavior. So they started to get something right, and a lot of it was moving away from that zero tolerance policy and not meeting the kids where they were in their culture, in their, in their region. So that, it seems to have made a little bit of a difference, but we're only going to see how much because this was only in 2013 and it's 2020. So we'll see. So let's get into cannabis legalization and where that leaves the D.A.R.E. program. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, yeah, please do tell me. So the I'm going to talk about Washington Initiative. So the Washington Initiative uh, 502 the legalized cannabis consumption, um, so you could have a small amount of uh, cannabis, you could have a small amount of marijuana um, for your use, and it made that legal. But in Washington State, they pretty much said, so research has found that teaching children about drugs with which they have never heard of or have no real-life understanding may actually stimulate their interest or curiosity about the substance. So this is from Washington State. So Washington State removed a lot of the D.A.R.E. program curricula from their schools because of the cannabis messaging that it had in it. Because it was, you know, basically equating smoking, smoking a joint to shooting up heroin, which <laughs> is kind of hard to do when... You have a state where it's legal to, you know, smoke marijuana. Well, and particularly if you're if you smoke marijuana because it tends to be the most readily available drug, and then you're like, well, that wasn't that big a deal, and then you're like, well, then heroin can't possibly be that big a deal. <laughs> right, like equating it, the it's false equivalence. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this is a similar initiative that uh, was in Colorado, and both the initiatives made. As I said, cannabis possession legal for people over 21, and it uses the taxes uh, for healthcare and substance abuse prevention and education. So we'll see how that goes. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how will Dare change because they're still around. I can't believe they're still around, but they are, and they're going to have to change as more and more states are legalizing cannabis consumption, and. They've actually moved into the UK, which has different uh, different laws as well. So I guess we'll we'll see where it goes. But as of now, they exist. They have a website. They talk about how they're critically acclaimed. But if you dig into the website, they will actually tell you the studies that happen. So I guess they're trying to be transparent. I have no idea. Um, they do talk a lot about how their curriculum changed over time. So if you're ever if you're curious about the Dare mission or 
uh, the dare through history it, it's a good resource um, they're still around the volunteers are hanging out in front of grocery stores that's how I found out they're still around um, and whether or not it is effective their new real prevention program is effective remains to be seen well and one reason I, I would bet that they are still around is because they started as law enforcement and they have remained law enforcement. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure that has uh, a bunch to do with it. And their inability to function to actually like decrease drug use and, and do anything other than incarcerate young black people is the fact that they were started by the LAPD does not surprise me then. Yeah, and a lot of it is also... Uh, Older people, older than me, older than Emily, um, a lot of older white people are, as have been criticized in the media recently, um, are obsessed with law and order. Uh, it's part of their generation. And I think a lot of this just harkens back to that attitude of zero tolerance. Drugs are bad. Drugs should never be used unless it's a little cannabis from your, you know, your hippie grandma, they're just bad, period, and we need to lock people up because it's a criminal issue. And as we're, as our culture is aging and we're kind of understanding the humanitarian issues that have gone along with the war on drugs, we're kind of seeing that we need to change how we approach drug use. And I think, I'm hoping, since D.A.R.E. refuses to die, <laughs> it's gonna... It really does. <laughs> I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it moves into the future and actually helps people. Well, and even looking at like cessation programs that involve things like kratom, like opioid addiction can, and I'm not a doctor, but it's not uncommon to manage opioid addiction at this point within the last few years with something like kratom. Mm -hmm. Versus sublock or what is it subloxone? Yeah, suboxone. Suboxone, yeah, which is a huge deal. And so, if it's not addressing things like cessation programs that involve utilizing other substances or recovery programs, or uh, it probably isn't doing any of those things. But if it doesn't do those things, then it's not actually showing the full picture of anything. So I hope you're right that they sort of move into the future. Yeah, I, I hope so too. They seem, they were pretty late with the, the opiate abuse issue. Uh, they launched that in 2018 and that's been an issue for a long time. Um, that's been an issue since I was like 15. Exactly. It, it's been an issue for a much longer time than 2018. Um, it's been an issue for like 20 plus years. Yeah, plus we've <laughs> talked about before the first opiate epidemic, which was, I believe, in like after the Civil War when people were addicted to morphine. Oh, yeah. You're right. <laughs> so it's not a new thing for people to be using drugs. It's just our attitude towards it, it has has changed to a law and order aspect of it, um, which, as we're seeing, is not humane and it's not working. Exactly. And I, that goes right back to the Kellogg brothers because they were involved to some extent with, like, 
addiction issues. And that's what, part of what their sanitariums would offer was help with addiction issues. Help. Yeah. Yeah. You could watch the black squirrels yourself. play. <laughs> yeah, you could watch <laughs> the black squirrels play while getting a yogurt enema. Oh. <laughs> How does that even work? I don't want to. I don't want to find out. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> so, I did an episode on where uh, black squirrels went. That talks about the Kellogg brothers and what a problem they were. Yes, it was an excellent show. Y'all should listen to it definitely. It was fun. Thank you, Sarah. I had no idea Dare was around. I know. It's crazy. I was like, these fools are still around. (laughs) (laughs) They are. They're still fooling around with their foolishness. (laughs) Anyway, what are you going to talk about? So I'm going to talk about something that is, seems mysterious and is actually not at all. And that's where, where does Spirit Halloween go? Yes! And Halloween City and Halloween USA, where do these pop-up Halloween stores go? And it's it's a really straightforward answer. It's like disappointingly simple. But uh, it's always seemed kind of mysterious. You have this empty store front somewhere. Usually it's like a Toys R Us or a Circuit City or Pier 1 or... Somewhere weird. Somewhere where you knew there was a store there. Usually a big box chain type store. Yeah, strip mob light. It sits empty. And then suddenly there's a Halloween store there. And then it's usually about 60 to 90 days before Halloween. And it's just cram full of stuff. And and you're just thinking, how did it get there? (laughs) And then November 1st, it's closed. And it's gone. Everything's gone. So what happens? Is it is there actually a spirit of Halloween? Yes. Sarah. <laughs> so Spirit Halloween Superstore has actually got their name uh, from a Mr. Joseph Marver, who ran a spirit women's clothing store in the Bay Area in California. And he lived across the st- or he, he lived, worked across the street from a costume shop. And particularly around Halloween, they it would just drive him nuts because there would be people out the door. So he saw firsthand that costumes in the Halloween era or time of the year were booming business. And so he actually started to take his spirit women's clothing stores and around October put most of the clothes in storage. And then he would go ahead and put in, bring in a bunch of costumes and Halloween stuff. And he would sell Halloween stuff for a short period of time. And then he would put the rest of the clothes back in November. So he could have sort of a Christmas shopping season as well. And he did so well by, by like his second or third year, he sold a hundred thousand dollars worth of worth of merchandise in 30 days. Holy Canasta. Which, which was in uh, 1986. So in 1986, money, $100,000 is a big deal. It's a, it's a fair amount of money now. You can, you can buy a 
moderately priced house in some places for that. But in 1986 money, that was a lot of money. And so up until, let me find the year. Here we go. Oh, I'm sorry. He started in 1984. And over the years, he, he grew Spirit Halloween because he just kept the name because it worked nicely with the, the theme of Halloween to 60 seasonal stores across the country. So he didn't just stay in California. And by 1999, it was acquired by Spencer's Gifts, which is a, a match made in retail heaven and cheesy crap hell. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of perfect it, for Spencer's sort of realm of tacky crap. Sorry, Spencer's. Um, you, you serve a massive niche, and please continue. Uh, so Spirit Halloween takes advantage of empty retail space by doing short-term leases. And for quite a long time, this wasn't considered very appealing for landlords. It was considered kind of sketchy, uh, concerns that they were, people were doing something illegal. Like, there's even a section in the Spirit Halloween website right now about how they are working toward ensuring that like California knows that they're not involved in any human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the type of thing that was seen for a long time as very sketchy, but then retail crashes started happening all over the place. And Sarah did a great episode about dead malls yes, and about how there are these big booms of mall building. And then the sort of enthusiasm for the mall might taper out and spirit Halloween and eventually a Party City pop-up Halloween store, uh, Halloween City, uh, would take advantage of this and rent for short term. And it became more and more, and particularly after the 2008 economic implosion, uh, of a thing that was seen as like a great, of great benefit for uh, retail landlords because it meant somebody would lease the space for some amount of time. Just, like, get somebody to pay us something. So, there are now at least 1,100 locations across North America for Spirit Halloween. And Spirit Halloween makes about $8.4 billion yearly. Holy which is, moly. That's a spectacle of money. Yes. <laughs> An embarrassment of Halloween riches. Uh, no kidding. One of the main reasons that I think they've become particularly popular is uh, there's been sort of a rise of, and not so much this year, obviously, but there's been a rise of escape rooms and haunted houses that are experiential. And Spirit Halloween tends to start teasing in the summer via social media and YouTube and things like that of the experience of being in a Spirit Halloween store. And I've read blogs of people going through the stores, uh, Graveyard Girl on YouTube, often does a little tour herself of going through Halloween stores because she likes the experience of going through one. And then, she, you know, she'll buy stuff. People tend to buy something. Uh, one of the articles I read started with a woman who, I, this has to be apocryphal. This, there's no way this actually, somebody, there's no way the journalist that wrote this article actually witnessed this, but a woman came into what used to be a Hancock Fabrics, clutching her sewing patterns and looking wide-eyed at all the Halloween things. And then she decides she needs to buy an eye patch anyway, so she just stays and buys something. <laughs> and I'm just 
I feel like that has to be Mark Twain levels of invention because it's a good story, but it doesn't make any sense if you think about it for more than 30 seconds. Right. So, because why would the woman walk into the Spirit Halloween store with all her sewing patterns? She'd see that there's no Hancock fabrics. They often have, like, the orange noodle men out there, too, with, like, the the wave their arms thing. We call them noodle men, but... (laughs) Exactly. I, you know, do you know what they're formally called? No. It's, It's... it's such a grandiose name, and I love it, but they're called Sky Dancers. Oh, that sounds uh, much nicer than what they or, actually are. Or Air Dancers. And yeah, they're just noodle men. Exactly. <laughs> Sky Dancer or Air Dancer makes them seem, like, powerful, and they're just noodle men noodling around in the wind. Exactly. We have a whole story that we told our friends, uh little boy, about the noodle men and where they go. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should put that up as a bonus episode on our patreon where does noodleman go yeah <laughs> yeah so spirit halloween has really capitalized on and sort of leaned into a temporary pop-up functionality and i swear i've seen one called halloween usa as well yeah i think it's more common in the midwest yeah and they maybe i couldn't find a lot of ownership amount information about that one but because spirit halloween is like the big deal one so maybe it's just different names so where does all this stuff go it starts it's shipped back to california there's a massive warehouse in california where pretty much all this stuff is stored and spirit halloween now operates online so you can order from them year-round which is handy for, you know, costume parties and New Year's and stuff like that. And they actually have sections. This is not sponsored by Spirit Halloween, by the way. Unfortunately. Uh, I mean, if you wanted to sponsor a Spirit Halloween, since we're, you know, plugging your company. Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, where does a podcast at gmail.com? <laughs> anyway. Uh, so all the stuff they wrap up on October 31st. To November 1st, they wrap it up, they ship everything to a warehouse, and then you can buy it online. Because that's what I've always marveled at, is where does all this stuff go? Mm-hmm. And my spouse, Nick, pointed out to me, he's like, well, that's probably why they don't sell candy. Because they don't have to worry about where do they, what do they do with all the food? Because that would get really disgusting. Oh, good point. And so, how do they, uh, there's... Uh, Joe Marver goes into in an interview, like, how do you actually plan this whole operation? And they actually start scouting for new locations for the next year, starting in November 1st. So they shut down the whole show on October 31st at midnight or whenever. I don't know exactly when they shut it down. And then the second that the show is shut down, they start working for the next year. Which makes a lot of sense because you've got to have business contract. It's like it's almost like weird little franchises everywhere. And you got to have contracts in place for rent, for moving things. And then you got to start figuring out what to buy. So how do they know what to buy? Because it's not like they have a steady supply chain. And they guess. They just guess based on trends they've seen, uh, trends, things that didn't work, they obviously get rid of. Uh, they look at movies to see what's coming up and, and you know themes and fads and stuff like that. And they also, uh, Mr. Marver said in an interview that they keep some money in their back pocket for, like, surprise hits, things that people really like. I bet uh, something like Babadook 
probably was kind of a surprise hit. You're not necessarily going to be thinking, oh, this Netflix movie is going to become part of uh, particularly queer iconography uh, and get really popular <laughs> both for for everybody, but also particularly for uh, it briefly on the internet for queer people. So as well as uh, the witch, the witch. Uh, yes, it's been a slow burn, but it's like people are noticing it now. It's one of my favorite horror movies. Well, and they featured uh, Black Philip in an episode of What We Do in the Shadows. So it's still sort of like it, that goat has become kind of yes. Iconic, but also in a sort of understated, pervasive way, like you said. So I agree with you. And then there's always the, like, sexy whatever costumes and the stupid novelty costumes. So you can probably safely bet on those. And he was he was going on, Mr. Marver was going on in an interview about how many different types of fake blood they offer and, and, and the pros and cons of each one. <laughs> So it's the type of thing where they kind of do their best to guess what will be popular. They keep some money back for ordering and they have suppliers sort of at their beck and call. Not all of them, but some of their suppliers can can quickly turn around an idea into a uh, a costume or a lawn decorations and house decorations and doing your own haunted house and stuff like that has become very popular. And actually, it will be very interesting to see what happens this year and next year with Spirit Halloween in the United States. Absolutely. I was going to say that. I'm like, what in the world is Halloween going to look like next year if we have a vaccine and we feel like it's safe? Halloween is going to be enormous next year. It's going to be a, a, a true like bacchanalia of candy corn and zombies. Exactly. <laughs> This year, I wonder what's popular already. Plague masks? Like, plague doctor masks? Almost certainly. Plague doctor, probably some medical stuff. What else? I'm trying to think of what was popular this year. I don't even know. Coronavirus costumes. I bet <laughs> that'll be a thing. Right. Just dressed as that little dog toy. Or Trump. Dressed as Trump. Ugh. So, that's where Spirit Halloween goes. It's very tightly integrated and kind of taking your best shot at supply chain management. That is amazing. And I bet the ephemeral quality of Spirit Halloween and seasonal Halloween stores just adds to their popularity because everybody knows you only have 30 days to get your... To get your Halloween goodness in. so And they do they do most of their business, almost all of their business, in the last two weeks before Halloween. No surprise. That's when I always go there. <laughs> and apparently a big part of their sort of profitability is, and uh, if you go into our site, like on our website, you can see show notes and stuff. And this interview with Mr. Marver is well worth reading just because it's kind of funny. He says that they're, you know, two weeks before Halloween, all the other stores are picked up apart and Spirit Halloween is still fat as cats. And it's just <laughs> a really quaint way to put that their store is still stocked with as many blood capsules as you could ever need. That's amazing. That makes me deeply happy. I don't know yeah, why. It's, 
It's it's a it's see a need, fill a need, and make some money off of it in a in a very sort of interesting and unusual way. And it's it's very similar to like um, Hickory Farms or Walden Books. They have pop up stores at Christmas that are seized candies that tend to pop up around the holidays, around Christmas, around Thanksgiving, and then go away. And I have, I don't know where all their stuff goes because it's food. Maybe it's online retail. Uh, again, but it's it's very it's a very specific facet of retail that you don't ne- you you kind of wonder about it, but you don't necessarily dig into it. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, inventory management and supply chain is like one of my favorite things. I don't know why. I find it so fascinating. Where obviously I'm doing this podcast where stuff goes and like how how does it got where does all the junk go where how do people buy stuff why do people buy stuff uh how do people broadcast or or predict futures of like what is going to be popular next year it's it's one of my favorite topics and i find it interesting it is really interesting and it's like see it's like working backstage yes. on a show which i enjoyed doing in high school i was on stage crew for 4 years a lot of it is anticipation of the market and sometimes you do it bad and it's not where it went like no one could have foreseen last year what was going to happen this year uh for halloween uh no absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe by uh, January they could have. Oh, well, of course. But, you know, I think in January we were all like, oh, it'll be fine. And then we got into March and we're we're like, Obama, where'd you go? The babysitter is weird. When are you coming home? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty accurate. (laughs) I was just going to say that's where Spirit Halloween goes, and that's the D.A.R.E. program is still kicking, which is scarier than Spirit Halloween. Those fools are still around. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, and we have a new tab on our website. If you go to wheredoesapodcast.com, we put up a donate, a donate page if you would like to donate to the podcast buy us a cup of coffee or uh, contribute to our our hosting fees that uh, Emily Emily and I pay out of pocket for. So, yeah, if you would like to donate, you don't want to be part of the Patreon, by all means, go donate to us. Please do. And you can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, online. We have a Pinterest that occasionally I look at and update. Um, yeah, you can find us. We're out there. Thank you. Thank you.